a Bible reading uh, today, if you're following along in the Bible that has uh, that we've purchased this year. I know several of you have told me, I'm still reading last year's Bible, or I'm reading two years ago. And, and I, I, just in the last week or two, I've heard two or three wonderful stories of individuals that have talked about how their life has been blessed because of the emphasis on daily Bible reading. And that's all we're wanting to do, is make sure that individuals get in the Word every day. And as we'll study in just a few minutes of the Lord of the Sabbath, uh, we will see something that reoccurs over and over in the life of Jesus. And so as we spend quite a bit of the next few weeks reading each day in the Gospels, we want to be aware of that. But if you're a guest tonight, again, uh, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that it's an encouragement to you to be together to worship with God's people. We've had a wonderful weekend. The ladies' kickoff breakfast was a great success. Our ladies do so many good works throughout the year, and the kickoff breakfast is a time that they kind of round up all the help they need for all of those. And so if you are a lady that hasn't been involved in that ministry, now would be a good time to contact some of those ladies and let them know, hey, I, I want to help out somewhere. Also, if you're looking for ways to get involved, as we continue to ask the question, if the congregation in Mount Juliet ceased to exist, would anyone in the community know or care? Would they notice that we weren't here? Would they care that we're not here? And we've been answering that in a way to say we want to be godly neighbors. We want to constantly reach out and, and show the love of God and, and not to have strings attached to it, but simply to love the way that Jesus loved us and the way Jesus loved others. And so one of the ways that we'll do that again in the month of January, as we did last year, is we'll have a public servant's breakfast. And uh, as already announced this evening, it, it will not be this Wednesday, but the next Wednesday. And CJP, if you want to be involved in helping serve or helping prepare or just to visit with individuals that would come in, if you know a lot of people in this town, we need people here at the congregation that know a lot of people so that so we can visit with those that come in and eat breakfast. And we simply want to do that to say thank you. They serve us every day, and we want to be good neighbors and simply tell them thank you and to give honor to whom honor is due. Uh, we are thankful that our young people are back uh, who attended Evangelism University, a wonderful weekend where they spend Friday night, all day Saturday, and then half of, or at least the beginning of Sunday in Bible classes and periods of worship to think about the importance of a soul and the souls of those around them and what can we do to urge people to move closer to God. We're thankful that we have young people that have that kind of heart and that kind of interest. As we look at Matthew, the 12th chapter, it's interesting to see at this point in the life of Jesus because, you know, when Jesus was 12 years old, he was able to go into the temple and sit down and to talk with, with the rulers and, and they welcomed the fact that there was a young man with such interest and also such wisdom for his age. But did you notice that once he began his public ministry, there was a turning point. There was a time where they didn't enjoy sitting down with Jesus anymore. You know, one of those moments in the turning point was Matthew the ninth chapter. Do you remember when uh, just a few days you, you read about the fact that he reached out to Matthew, the tax collector? And you remember the, the, the Pharisees, they kind of stepped back from that and said, wait a minute, this man is eating with sinners. They didn't like that at all. You see, the more they learned of Jesus, the more they realized he breaks our traditions. We don't like the path that he's going. But then he became successful. They realized that he was a powerful speaker. They, they began to hear and see his miracles. Now he's gathering a multitude. So then not only did they realize he's different from us, 
but he's also successful at ministry. Look at all the people he's drawing in. So then that led to jealousy. But what's interesting is over the next few weeks as we read through the Gospels, you're going to notice that the times that they seem the most disturbed with Jesus, now this may sound strange to you, but just you notice it as we read through. You're going to see this over and over. Is when Jesus is in situations of the Sabbath and he seemed to do things that violated their understanding of the Sabbath. If you've never thought about this before, you'll probably be surprised at this, and, and I want you to see it with your own eyes as you study over the next few weeks. There were many times they didn't like what he did, and they would distance themselves from him. But when he did what he did on the Sabbath, which happened over and over throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's when they started talking about, let's kill him. Isn't that interesting? Those were the times that they were moved to say, we have to destroy this guy. We need to take him off the face of the earth because of what he did and said as it had to do with Sabbaths. Why? I'll be honest with you. I don't know exactly why that disturbed them so much. I read what one scholar said this week about why he thought it disturbed them so much. He said that many religions in that day had their temples, just like God's people had their temple. Many in, in that day had sacrifices that they were required to make to their God, just as God's people were required to make sacrifices. But there was something unique in that period of the first century about the Sabbath. Other religions didn't seem to have that one special day that was set aside. And so it was almost as if the Jews had something very unique to all the other religions. And they felt like that he was not being respectful, not following their traditions of something that was so very, very important. Whatever it is, hopefully as we study these first two paragraphs of Matthew the 12th chapter, we get to see Jesus dealing with the same group of individuals on two different situations of the Sabbath day. And it's interesting to note that the first one began out in the fields and the next one concludes in the synagogue. And so let's read these and let's simply see what it is that Matthew teaches us as he records Jesus' interaction with these individuals of the Sabbath. Let's get the setting. We're in Matthew the 12th chapter and verse 1 and 2. He says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So I have a setting here. We have Jesus and his disciples. We have Pharisees that are apparently watching every move he makes. Can you imagine that? They're just traveling along. How far were they traveling? Probably not more than a Sabbath day journey or they would have been violating the law. And as they travel along, one might say, well, did they even have a right to eat that grain? It wasn't their grain. When we go back to Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter, I'd like to just quickly read for you Deuteronomy 23 and verse 25. This is a part of God's law under the old law. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain... You may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. You see right there is the direct law. What's the principle? 
The principle that the Lord is teaching here is if you're a farmer and you have grain, if you have crops, if you have an orchard, you'd be benevolent enough that it would not be a violation of God's law. You understand it's not a violation of God's law if your neighbor is passing through your orchard and says, Oh, look at that apple. That's delicious and neat. If they're passing through your grains with their hand, they can gather some grain and eat that grain along the way. But what the Lord says here in Deuteronomy, He says, don't be taking your sickle in and harvest your neighbor's grain. But if you're just walking through, help yourself to a little bit. That's the principle that's in play in the law that God has given. And so the question here is not, were they stealing? No, they weren't stealing. What they were doing is they were violating the Sabbath traditions of the Pharisees. Now you must understand, they didn't violate the Sabbath law of God. They violated the traditions that the Pharisees had placed. In other words, the Pharisees would take the law of God and then they would create their tradition that would be more exclusive than God's law and then they would bind it as if it were law on everyone else. That's literally what it means when someone says, you're being like a Pharisee. Except today, religious people don't use it that way. As a rule of thumb, today, people will take someone who's simply trying to strictly obey the Word of God, which, by the way, the last time you checked, that was a good thing to do. Remember what we studied this morning, where Jesus was without sin? That's our goal. We want to strictly obey the Word of God. We don't want to be sinners. But yet today, individuals, religious individuals, have taken and said, that's being a Pharisee. That is as wrong as wrong can be. Being a Pharisee is when you take the law of God and say, I'm going to go further than that. I'm going to create my own tradition that's greater or less than that. And I'm going to bind it on you as law. That's what was happening here about the Sabbath day. And so Jesus begins to talk with them. And notice who he brings up first. He brings up one of the ones out of the Old Testament that would have been the sweet spot in their heart. There would have been two probably that would have been the greatest. And that would have been their father Abraham and their king David. They loved king David. And so Jesus, in other words, is going to bring up an interesting point here. You think I've done wrong by my disciples violating your Sabbath and you want to hang me up. But isn't it interesting that your king David that you love so much did wrong and you still want to proclaim him as your wonderful King David. Why the inconsistency here? Here's the way he says it. He says it better than what I just said. Look in verse 3. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered in the house of God and he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? I remember as a teenager... This passage and passages like it becoming a very, very hot topic in lectureships. And the discussion then was heavily based upon the fact, is there ever situational ethics? Is there ever a time in the scriptures that a situation would dictate the right to disobey the law of God? And there have been individuals that tried to take what you and I just read and say, see, Jesus even taught that it was okay in that particular situation for David and his men to eat bread that God said was completely against the law. And people have heard those lessons and some have said, I guess that's it. Others have heard those lessons and say, I don't know how to answer that. Well, why don't we let the Word of God answer it? 
Did Jesus say what David did was lawful or unlawful? Go back and look again. What did he say there in verse 4? When Jesus spoke of what David did, he said that he ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Never once in the two verses we just read, did he ever say, I agree with what David did. He was just giving an account of what David did. David did something that was not lawful. Could, could he have said it any clearer? What could he have said to make it more so? In other words, he said, I do not believe he did the right thing. What he did was unlawful. Well, why is he bringing it up? We've already mentioned that. He's bringing it up to show their inconsistency. Isn't that interesting? He did something that's unlawful and you praise him as your great king. I come in and all I do is my men violate your tradition of the Sabbath and you're ready to proclaim me as a horrible sinner? He takes it another step further. He doesn't give them apparently an opportunity to answer up at this time. He goes ahead and starts talking about the priests. Look in verse 5. Have you not read that in the law that on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath? and are blameless. So that's interesting. In principle, if we were to just take the simple teachings of the Sabbath, it would appear that the priests are violating it because they work on the Sabbath. They had temple duties that would have been hard work. I'm sure there's not many of you that have been in the slaughtering business. I know there'd be a few of you. But you ask anybody that has slaughtered animals, and that's hard work. If you're going to be in the business of temple duties, you're going to be involved as a priest in some very hard work. And if that takes place on Sabbath, it takes place on Sabbath. Why? Because that is the duty that God gave to the priest. And so what he's showing here is to say, isn't that interesting that what God gave the priest the responsibility to do on the Sabbath, it would appear to violate the working, or rather not working on the Sabbath, but yet it's not a sin because God ordained that. God gave that. Now you see what he's probably implying here as he's implying the fact that he gets right to the point, he doesn't imply it later on, but that is, hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. But here's where I want to make sure that we all understand clearly. Remember that I was talking about situational ethics? There are some that then have tried to say, oh, well you see, Jesus allowed his disciples to eat of that grain even though it was wrong normally, it was okay this time. No, that's not at all what's happening here either. It wasn't wrong. It simply violated the tradition. But I want you to see a verse that clarifies all that for us. Did Jesus ever do some kind of situational ethics where he could say, okay, in this particular case... I'm going to let my disciples do something that's wrong. Back up just a few pages in your Bible and let's be reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Jesus has already covered this back in Matthew 5 and 17. And when I say he's covered it, I mean he's covered his approach to the law. Did Jesus come to this earth thinking that he had, because he was God in flesh, he had some kind of ticket that if he ever wanted to disobey the law, that that was fine and, and that there was no wrong in that? Well, let's hear how he says it, beginning of verse 17. We're in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. 
Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does not teach them, or whoever does and teaches them, he shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, can you imagine being there in the Sermon on the Mount? Could you imagine being a Pharisee or scribe in that audience? And can you imagine how blunt Jesus was at that particular time? You guys want to go around accusing me of disobeying the law? Jesus in this sermon, towards the very beginning of the sermon, says, let me tell you my stand as it relates to the law. Nobody has a right to take away anything from the law. Nobody. He says, I'm not even going to take away a jot or a tittle. We'd say crossing the T and dotting an I. In other words, he says, the smallest marks in the language, I am going to obey every one of them. And if somebody doesn't, they don't have a place in the kingdom. They're the least in the kingdom. Friends, then he boldly proclaims, if you're going to be righteous, make sure you don't define your righteousness like the scribes and the Pharisees do. Why? Their righteousness is not defined by the law of God. Their righteousness is defined by their interpretations and traditions that they have added to the law of God. And so over the next few weeks, as you and I read so many things about the life of Jesus in the Gospels, be noticing how Jesus is always having to deal with the Pharisees who are constantly living by a different standard. It's their own standard. And how Jesus is constantly having to deal with them, especially on the topic of the Sabbath. And so let's go back to that and, and let's bring this first story. Let's start moving it toward a conclusion and then we'll take just a few minutes. That It's a little bit shorter story to look at that in the synagogue. But we're still out in the field here and Jesus is still talking to these individuals. And so now he has said, I want to show you your inconsistencies as it relates to David. And then I just want to bring to your mind the, the priest and then he states this very strong ending in 6, 7, and 8. In 6, yet I say to you that in this place there is one that is greater than the temple. Do you remember later on when Jesus was, was dying on the cross, even other individuals remembered what he said about being the temple, that, that he could be destroyed and that it would be built back in three days. Jesus is greater than the temple. Do you see the application in that? Before I make that, I want to join another point parallel, and then I'd like for us to make sure that we don't fall prey to the same mistake that the Pharisees were making here. When he talks about the Sabbath, look what he says in verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I want you to think in, in kind of a line of what Jesus has said here. I've talked with you, Jesus could say, about David. And you think he's such a great man. I'm not saying Jesus wouldn't say he is. That's just a fact. You would say he's such a great man. I've talked with you about the priest. Wonderful office that God created. I've talked with you about the temple. And I've talked with you about the Sabbath. Who is David's king? Jesus could say, I'm David's king. 
Who's the God that these priests offer sacrifices to? He could say, I'm the God they offer sacrifice to. There's a holy of holies in the temple where God dwells. Did you know I'm God? And the Sabbath, that special day that's set aside for you to really meditate and and to worship God, and, and you set that whole day aside for God. Did you know that I'm the Lord of the Sabbath? Friends, as wonderful for the Jews as all of those facts are, think how easy it is for us to get wrapped up in the things of our religion and never lift our high eyes high enough to see God. Do you see the point? What if tonight you're simply converted to a religion, but you're not converted to God? What if, what if, what if you take the Lord's Supper and, and you think in your mind, it's important for me to take it, but you don't do it in remembrance of God? What if you say, I'm going to give on Sunday, but you don't really appreciate the fact that God has given to you and you're giving back to God? What if you thought, I want to convert somebody to the church. But in your mind, you really weren't thinking, I want to convert them to Christ and His church. Friends, God in flesh was standing before them, before the Pharisees, and He was pleading with them, you are so tied up on the Sabbath, which is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing that you would want to keep the Sabbath But can you not see the Lord of the Sabbath standing right in front of you? How can you be so blind? And that's what we need to make sure that we never, never become blind to God and to realize that everything that He commands in religion and everything that He commands in our morality and everything that He commands in our lives and our families, that all of that is out of a respect for God that we obey it, but it's also to help us better see God. Now, I promise you we'll look at this second one quicker. They leave now the the field, and they're about to go into the synagogue. And notice this setting in 9 and 10. Now when he had departed from there, meaning from the field, he went in to their synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, And they, this would be the Pharisees probably, asked him saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath that they might accuse him? In other words, that's why they asked. They just wanted to accuse him of something wrong. Let's pause there for a moment. Do you realize that indirectly, they would have never wanted to do it on purpose, that's for sure. Indirectly and probably mistakenly, they gave Jesus a compliment, didn't they? Think about this. There is a man sitting in their midst that has an ailment and needs help. They're sitting in their midst, and and they're not doing anything about it. But when Jesus walks in, what do they immediately do? Now think about this. Out of all the ways their mind could have ran, when Jesus walked in, their mind immediately went to the person that needed healing. And so they bring it up. It's almost as if they were going to say, Oh, here comes that guy that's always trying to reach out and do something good for somebody in need. That's a pretty good compliment, isn't it? Wouldn't it be awesome if, if whenever we go to help our neighbor, somebody says, 
Are you a member of the Mount Juliet Church of Christ? Because it seems like it's always people with Mount Juliet Church of Christ that are loving their neighbors. Wouldn't that be a wonderful compliment? That's how Jesus was known. He is a man that was constantly reaching out and helping those who were hurting. But of course, they're going to tie in the fact of his healing to the fact that he's going to do it on the Sabbath day. And, and so let's see how he answers them first with another question. They ask a question and he answers them. Look in verse 11 with a question. What man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And it was restored as whole as the other. Okay, so the setting here is Jesus' answer is going to go back to priorities. And what he says to them must have convicted them in a way that they truly would have been embarrassed because it it revealed their priorities. They believe that it would be wrong to heal this withered hand on the Sabbath. Now keep in mind, that only violated their tradition. It did not violate the law of God to do that. And so, so Jesus says, let me ask you a question. You have a sheep. How many of you in here, if that sheep fell into a pit on the Sabbath day, you wouldn't immediately reach in and help it? Because, I mean, if it's 7 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, you're not going to watch that little sheep lie in that pit and just hope. I hope he lives until the sun goes down. And, and, and in their tradition, that's when the Sabbath was over on Saturday evening when the sun went down. And maybe about 7 or 8 o'clock tonight, I'll be able to come back. And if he's still alive, I'll pull him out. And Jesus said, I know every one of your minds. You would immediately reach down and you would help a lamb. You would help a sheep out of there. And you'd do it because you value it. We're talking about your wallet now. It's important to you because it's money. And the Lord says, I want to tell you what I value more than you value sheep. Well, that doesn't sound good, does it? Literally in his answer, now he's saying to them, I value a human life and a soul more than you value an animal, a sheep. That's a lesson for us all. What do you value the most? What would you do for an animal? And then to think, would you do even greater things for a soul? He did restore that individual because that's the business Jesus is in. Jesus loves us. He values us. And I ask you to think about that simple fact as we move this lesson to a close. Have you really, really thought about that? Jesus loves you. Not just people like you. Not just the human race. Jesus loves you. And He values you more than any other part of the creation as the human race. He values you more than any 
any mountain range that He's created. He values you more than any animal that He created. He, uh, the galaxies, one after another, He values you more than any of those. And someone says, David, how can you be so sure about it? Because He made you in His own image. That's why Jesus, without any hesitancy, could look to these people and say, how is it that you can get into animals so much and you don't love the image of God so much? Friends, if we ever forget who we are, we forget why it's so important to be who we should be. When I recognize the fact that I am made after the image of God, there is a high calling for me. And I'm not trying to be cute, but it's a fact. We're not junk. We're not made like leftovers. We're not made like any other aspect of the creation. We are special. Jesus could look around all of creation. He walked the earth. He lived side by side, human beings. And he could look around every time and say, I choose you over possessions. I choose you over animals. I choose you over the universe. I love you. And here's the cold-hearted Pharisees that Jesus wasn't saying it's kind of like this. Jesus is looking at the cold-hearted Pharisees and saying, you literally love an animal more than you love souls. And Jesus, he wouldn't be moved from this. He wouldn't say, well, I'm not going to rock the boat. He knew that it was going to stir them up. But he looked at that man with the withered hand and he restored it. And he gave him back that hand that was just as whole as the other. And you remember where we began this lesson tonight? What do you think is the result going to be? Look at verse 14. Then. See how it's tied into the story? Then. Once they've seen that, they'd already heard the lesson out in the grain fields. Now they've seen what's happened in the synagogue. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. We have to kill that man. Isn't that a shame? You know, on one side, we just say that's unbelievable. That someone would get so wrapped up in religion that they would fail to see people and then they would fail to see God on earth. But before we point the finger too much, just remember that's been the tendency of mankind as they are religious. It's almost as if our eyesight gets lower and lower and we remain religious, but we don't see God. And so tonight, I'm not accusing you of that by any means. I'm just saying learn lessons from the Word of God. And let's make sure that that doesn't describe us. That we can truthfully say, I want to see God in everything that He teaches. I don't ever want to see a command without seeing God. I don't want to ever see a, a part of worship without seeing God. And so tonight, we extend the invitation. And, and as truthfully as I could say, this invitation is all about God. It's not this church has sat down and come up with something that we want you to do. It's not that at all. It's the Lord's invitation where He says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The Lord wants you to be saved. The Lord values you. The Lord loves you. And if you're not saved this evening, the Lord, the Savior, wants to save you. 
If you're a believer, willing to repent of sins and confess before men, won't you be immersed, baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins that come out of that water, having the Savior as your Savior? Maybe you've begun that journey, and along the way you've let your eyes just get a little bit lower and lower to the earth, and maybe it's time to set your affections on things above again. Whatever we need to do, we want to encourage you. We want to help you take the next step. And if there's something we can do right now, come as we stand and as we sing.